You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Solar A Energy, experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, and Wattwatches, providing super smart devices to monitor and manage energy use. Hello and welcome to this episode of Energy Insiders. My name is Giles Parkinson. Um, my co-conspirator David Leach is still away. He's on the plane back to Australia as we speak. But um, the good news is that today I'm being joined by Simon Holmes Court from the Climate and Energy College in Melbourne. Um, Simon, welcome to our program and you better correct me, is it the Energy Transition Hub or is it the Climate and Energy College? Hi Giles, great to be on your show. I've been an avid listener since the very first very first episode. Uh, the Energy Transition Hub is a, well, the, the Climate Energy College is the Melbourne host of the Energy Transition Hub. Uh, Energy Transition Hub is, is a joint initiative, uh, Melbourne University, ANU, um, some academics around the country, and then three leading uh, climate and energy institutions in Germany. So it's, a, 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 I guess, a, uh, a research program that spans the two countries and looks at the uh, technical, economic, uh, political, social aspects of energy transition. And that's uh, you know, moving from the high, intens- high emissions intensive economies that Australia and Germany have in- towards the zero emissions economies we want and need. And you're particularly active in just sort of promoting um, some of the ideas about the energy transition and sort of uh, keeping a bit of a a, a bit of a bit of an eye and a bit of a check on um, some of the some of the stuff that's said out there. And I think um, anyone who's uh, read Renew Economy um, has probably seen us sort of uh, complain and, um, and 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 tackle some of the myths that are out there. But you're particularly active, and um, you do a lot of your stuff through Twitter too, don't you? Um, you? You seem to find that a very active forum. Yeah, I only only really discovered Twitter. Oh, it's uh, 15 months ago now, um, and I've, I've found it to be a, a great medium. I, I really enjoy it. People complain about low signal to noise, but I, 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 um, I find it to be a fascinating place to quickly connect with the experts in almost any field around the world. Um, they're, they're, they're very, very easy to get hold of experts and uh, very easy to get hold of journalists. If journalists say something good or say something really silly, you can be talking to them within a few minutes. Uh, and, uh, and if you do it respectfully, um, you can really make headway in making sure that you know, the next story they write is more accurate uh, or whatever. And, and um, yeah, I've, I've also found people are just, people are very hungry for very hungry for good news, and they're very hungry for truth. So when when people uh, you know, put put out rubbish, which we, we often see in in the media, uh, we, we you know people people I think generally Australians know when they're being lied to, but they don't always know what how they're being like yeah. so they're very receptive to it. Yeah, look, there's so much of what we call sort of fake news out there, and I guess sort of social media is one of those places where a lot of it exists. How do you manage to differentiate yourself from it? Hmm. Well, I uh, I work very hard to be nonpartisan. Um, you know, I think people say silly things on um, all over the political spectrum uh, about energy. Uh, and I try to, well, I always, always back up what I've got with, with facts, um, uh, I always uh, list sources, <laughs> sources, and I'm yeah, pretty handy at whacking up a quick graph and, and uh, know where to go to find information. And because I'm based at this this group at Melbourne University, if I don't know something, I can very quickly find 
one of Australia's leading experts on on the issue, and that 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 means. Yeah, it might might look like I've always got my finger on the pulse, but really I've just got my finger not far from a whole lot of other pulses. <laughs> Very good. Hey, look, we'll, we'll get into some of the subjects that um, with um, so talk about some of your activities, and uh, I'm particularly interested in some of your efforts to try and talk to some of the people who have been um, sort of you know um, who don't seem so well informed, um, and, and I'm fascinated to hear about that. But look, let's just go through some of the news of the week and. Um, this probably plays to um, some of your interest any, um, as well. Look, I guess the big one um, that came out on Monday was the Grattan Institute report. And, um, you know, we sit here in 2018, five years and a week since Tony Abbott um, was sworn in as Prime Minister in 2013, and we basically still have no climate and energy policy. And what's worth, we seem to have a government that's making a virtue out of it. Um, it was pretty interesting seeing the Grattan Institute report just looking at the role of lobbyists and all the peak bodies and what have you in framing and forming policy and influencing politicians. And it's quite extraordinary. The um, Well, one is the lack of information. There's no visibility. We don't actually know who the ministers are meeting and when. We don't really know that much about um, the donation activities. We get a bit of a look at it, but we don't know much about the details. Uh, the Grattan Institute reports sort of draws on a whole bunch of other work that's been done, which you know gives a fairly bleak view about um, what is going on. Um, Charles, I think it was it, it's amazing. Uh, even even what is public, you drew the lines between, or just describe the revolving doors out of one minister's office and into a peak body, and sometimes back again. Uh, absolutely stunning how, uh, how you know how this revolving door really does operate in Canberra. Oh, well, that's right, yeah, and particularly with the Minerals Council, which everyone knows has been the biggest um, voice against the carbon price and against renewable energy targets and pro the coal lobby. So at the moment, the um, the uh, the chief of staff for uh, Scott Morrison is the former deputy CEO of the Minerals Council, uh, John Kunkel, who was there for six and a half years and then went on to be, uh, for two years, the chief government lobbyist for Rio Tinto. Greg Hunt, you may remember him as the former environment minister. His main advisor, Patrick Gibbons, um, went from there to the Minerals Council, and um, the Minerals Council, Sid Maris, went from there to the Prime Minister's office. But um, you have some other background about um, about <laughs> about the hunt. Oh yeah. Man. Oh well, I mean, uh, yeah, I've, I've had interactions with the Minerals Council, but um, yeah, in, in, in particular, um, yeah, one one individual I followed, um, Patrick Gibbons, you know, at one point was with uh, with Hazelwood with International Power, I and mean, then not long after. I bumped into him when he was uh, advisor to Ted Value, um, tasked with shutting down the Victorian wind industry. Bumped from there to Greg Hunt's office, where he's tasked to help shut shut down the rest, and then bumped from there to the Minerals Council. Quite a, a stunning, you know, from industry to states to federal to to uh, uh, I don't know what is the Minerals Council, a think tank lobby group. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and um, so far in all my advocacy, I've only received one, only had one complaint filed against me, and that that, that was by Patrick. So if you're listening, high out there, uh, I'm, I'm still going. <laughs> Look, and it's not just the advice, it's actually the ministers as well. It's sort of shocking to sort of think that um, that um, of the last um, three energy ministers that have actually left Parliament, um, Martin Ferguson went um, within six months from being the Resources and Energy Minister to working for the Australian, um, for APIA, which is the big oil and gas lobby. 
Ian McFarlane, the former Industry and Resources Minister, went uh, within 12 months from being Minister to heading up the Queensland um, Resources Council, which I guess is the Queensland affiliate of the uh, Minerals Council. Uh, Gary Gray, I'm not too sure where he went after he was a minister, but before he was a minister he worked for Woodside. He sort of managed to um, put in a long stint there in between being the National Secretary of the Labor Party and um, then a minister for um, resources and energy and um, enthusiastically described himself as three peas in a pod with McFarlane mm -hmm. and Ferguson. And even Greg Combay uh, went to do some um, consulting work with AGL and Santos. And one of the fascinating things I found about the Grattan Institute report was that if you are a person who lobbies for a uh, an industry, but you are not registered at a as a lobbyist, there is actually a penalty for that, and it is being deregistered <laughs> as a lobbyist for which you are not registered for. That was amazing, amazing to read, amazing to read. <laughs> and big, even big. As, even as a politician, Nothing it gets worse there. Stick. Yes, that's right, yes. And as a politician, if you're a former minister um, and you act as a lobbyist in a portfolio for which you were responsible, then the penalty for doing that is no longer being the minister. It's really that pathetic. But what we'll hear is it's, uh, we'll probably hear someone soon say it's within the rules. It's, with, it's within the rules. It's within the rules. The and, the, um, the and, and, most, and most of these peak bodies are not actually defined as, um, as, as lobbying, um, as lobbyists. They're just uh, peak bodies. So they obviously have the, uh, the interests of the greater community at heart as well as um, that of their no industry. Doubt. No doubt. Well, I guess in a few years' time, maybe you know, fast forward a decade and we'll have uh, Angus Taylor as the head of the Minerals Council, no doubt. <laughs> but that. not lobbying, but not lobbying. And, um, not lobbying, no, no, no. That's right, yes. Um, yes. Now, look, you've actually, um, so Angus Taylor, look, he's an interesting one. You've actually um, had quite a bit to do with Angus Taylor um, over the years, um, particularly in his campaigning against um, wind farms. And I think you appeared in a forum with him over in, um, was it Yas or Goulburn, um, going back about... In, in Goulburn last November. Yeah, and, no, and I, Just I, last I... November. Yeah, so, so, so what, what, what's your assessment? Well, I first met Angus uh, about six weeks or so before he uh, he, he stood for, for Goulburn. He'd, he'd just moved to the area. Um, he'd, uh, uh, he'd been very active talking against wind farms and he'd just put out a, a paper on Port Jackson Partners letterhead, the consultancy where he worked with Rod Sims. So there's another one of those revolving doors. Yeah, that's right. Um, and, and, just, and, and just as a reminder, Rod Sims is the chairman of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission. Anyway, please go on. Correct. Uh, Angus put out a paper around the party room, uh, around the coalition party room, quite, you know, quite, quite from get up and go to, to, to do that before you're even elected. Um, the, the paper advocated the immediate cessation of the renewable energy target. Angus wanted to kill the target and he made an argument that um, we could replace the renewable energy target with, with uh, quote, baseload gas or with international credits. Now, of course, both of those would have been a disaster because in the, you know, in the, in the what is it, uh, five years since, renewables have halved in price and gas has tripled. So yes. we would have been stuck with um, somebody would have gone broke or the Australian taxpayer would have been shelling out billions for, for this baseload gas. Uh, and of course, we wouldn't have any of the all the general, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't have done the energy transition that we have done in that period, and if we had we had bought international credits, uh, who knows certainly what we would have bought, uh, and we still wouldn't have transformed our economy in any way, which, yeah. which we have been we have been doing. So that, that was one of Angus's first, uh, first first actions before he was even elected. But but he um he's on record as having been fighting wind farms since one was uh, offered to his 
his family in, in the um, Eden Monaro area uh, back in, I think it was 1998. Uh, so so 20, 20, 20 years of fighting wind farms. Um, I, I, uh, Angus said some silly things about wind farms on his Facebook page. Uh, I made some comments on them, and after a little while, uh, he deleted the entire conversation. So that was that was, a, I guess, that's one one way to get me engaged is to try to censor me. Uh, well, he's not the only person that's, that's deleted. <laughs> he's not the only person that's deleted conversations. Uh, we actually um, published a conversation that uh, David Clark, a um, a wind campaigner or wind enthusiast from South Australia, had had with Angus Taylor on Facebook. And uh, no, that was it. That, that, that was I was part of that conversation. Oh, okay, you know, and, okay. And, um, and I think, yeah, yeah, just the conversation just disappeared one day, oh, um, which is a, a very, uh, I think, insipid form of, of censorship that Facebook allows. Uh, the if, if it's posted on someone's page, it allows the host to remove it. Sometimes it can make it, can yeah. make it do it without without anyone's knowledge, which is pretty insipid. So look, what, how, yeah. much, how much damage can um, Angus actually do? Look, he's he, he's not going to stop the renewable energy target as uh, people like Alan Jones and um, and and others want him to do. Well, from here, I don't think he can do much. I mean, he he has already done a lot of a lot of damage. Um, yes, he he, um, he was very much in the background on the Warburton review, the the um, Abbott's review of renewable energy back in 2014-15. Angus was um, played a key role there, and there's a, there's a great YouTube video where he boasts about it to his constituents that. Uh, He's in the background fighting, and he's got the party behind him. And the the, the end of renewable energy target is nigh. So um, he he's, he's been very destructive in in the past. The renewable energy target would arguably be 41,000 uh, gigawatt hours uh, had Angus not uh, worked so tirelessly. I mean, it was cut down from 41 to 33, so uh, quite a significant reduction at the time. And uh, he. Um, uh, has worked very hard in the background. He was boasting to Ray Hadley the other week. Worked very hard to undermine the national energy guarantee. So um, I think most of the damage that Angus could have done has been done. From here on in, probably the only thing really, uh, the only lever he's got to pull is the is the small scale renewable energy scheme. So solar rooftops. I think that's one that a lot of people on the, uh, a lot of his boosters will, will want him to attack rooftop solar soon. But I just I don't know whether the government's brave enough to do that. Oh, I don't think they're going to do it, you know, because um, I was just actually listening to Country Hour today um, on my way back in the car, and um, it was interesting. They had a very, very long segment about all the farmers turning to solar because the farmers are doing it very tough, as we all know, because of drought. And the number of farmers, the increasing numbers of farmers turning to solar, um, you know, the sub-100 kilowatt schemes, which would be the ones affected um, if the coalition government actually did that. So I can't um, mm. I can't see them kicking them guts in, in their own constituents. Look, there is one other thing that's on his... Um, Plays at the moment, and this is this um, proposal from his mate uh, Rod Sims at the ACCC for so-called dispatchable power. Now, um, well, I think when Sims, and I'm going to pull you. I'm going to pull you up in a second because it's not it's nothing to do with dispatchable power. Ah, well, there you go. Um, so, <laughs> we will pull me up right now. Then, what was it? If it wasn't done, okay, it's... we'll pull, pull you up. Um, so, it, it, Rod Rod Sims identified that we have a competition issue in the wholesale market and he's absolutely right there, he's there absolutely are some right states, about that yep some states where uh where there are you know two or three generators control 60 70 80 percent of generation and retail uh and if you want to build a new project you've got to sell your your you've got to sell your energy to one of those mobs um and it's very hard to do so if they don't want to you know if they don't if they don't want you in the market if they don't want you to compete uh, it's very difficult to get your project where well, you can't get your project financed. 
So ACCC's recommendation four was that the government should help these new entrants. These small, this is my dog in the background shaking his head. I can um, hear that. I'm, I'm sure he's nodding in agreement. <laughs> he's nodding in agreement. He, he thinks he thinks we need a new new entrants in the market, and uh, they and and you know, new entrants um, really need to get 15 year power purchase agreements in order to get finance. But the off takers, mainly these corporate PPAs, are only happy to buy energy for five years at a time. Um, so you've got a mismatch of that years, uh, I guess years six to 15. Uh, the, the banks want to see that, that they want to see that you can cover the interest in that uh, period, but the corporate off takers aren't prepared to commit to that. So Rod said, okay, how about if a, if, if a, new, if a developer can bring a, a new project to market, have at least three customers who have agreed to purchase the energy for at least the first five years. Um, and if the company is not one of the big three, basically. And uh, then and lastly, here's the, the critical line. If they're capable of providing a firm product so that it can meet the needs of commercial and industrial customers. Now, a firm product doesn't mean that you've got a generator on site or you're uh, a coal power generator or your base load or... Um, gas or anything, what it, what it means is that you can meet the, uh, you can basically meet the financial obligation behind the consumption um, of, of your customer. So you can, you can, so you can firm up several ways. You can go put batteries on your solar farm and you've got a firm product. You could put, uh, you could sign a contract with a existing gas generator or hydro, uh, or you could just go out into, you know, find, find a financial Product uh, in the in the futures market, you could find a trader who would help you mm. firm up just with financial instruments alone. And we've started to see some of those contracts coming out now. Um, some retailers are starting to introduce them, and people are now starting. Yeah, to my understanding, but both ERM and AGL have have firming products out there to help to help small businesses in order to put together firm firm product, which is quite interesting. So, so uh, yeah, ACCC has been very clear, and Rod, Rod Sims came out and said this is not about coal. Yes, he was misquoted. I think was it was it Matt Canavan came out and said this was a shot in the arm for coal. Well, not just Matt Canavan. I just think it was the whole of the Conservatives. And, and I think what worries me is that if the government does run forward with this scheme, that they will reshape it and redefine it in the image of what they think they want, which is yeah, no, exactly. So, Fed so, income power. And here's here's the, the the deep stupidity we're about to enter into again. While Rod Sims is very clear, it's just for new generators that can offer a firm product. The devil will be in the details by the time Angus exactly. brings this through to, you know, introduce the legislation. Somehow it will refer to uh, you know, base load or um, uh, dispatchable or you know, dinky die ridgy didge, um, <laughs> fair income, <laughs> bonds a ripper fab. Uh, you know, That's right. Yes. Power. Yes. You, you, yeah. You, you you can build this as long as you've got a boil, a big, a very big boiler with the words fair dinkum written on the side of it. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> got to have some sheep dip and some fosters or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it's 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 really that it's really that sad and that pathetic. Uh, that it's yeah. It's, I'm, it, it, Angus is in a, he's in a he's in a tough position, but he, he um in that he's got to try to you know, he, he's showing that he really wants to impress the Alan Joneses of the world. Uh, but what Rod Sims is talking about is, you know, is if, if this project was to be run safely, nine out of ten projects that are financed would be uh, wind or solar firmed up yeah. with, uh, well, I think, with, with external well, I think contracts. Sanjeev, 
Yeah, well, I think Sanjeev Gupta actually made the observation to Renew Economy um, a month or so ago when he um, just did the sod turning for his Wyala solar farm that um, if they were to do that and to, to frame it properly, then it could actually help reduce the cost of solar and um, battery storage or firming capacity to probably yeah, below five cents a kilowatt hour. It's um, a very and, strange place we're in where, where industry is going one way and, and Canberra, and I probably should stop saying Canberra because every time I do that, people from Canberra... Get upset, yes. <laughs> Canberra is a city, not a not, not a not a political city. Yeah. Uh, the, 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 Fed, the federal government uh, and and media, for some segments of the media at least, uh, are you know, are a decade behind. And in this area, a decade is a very very long time. Oh, it's a huge long. It's a hugely long time. Look, I guess the other thing on his plate, and um, you know, just sort of reading between the lines, or not even just reading between the lines, just reading the headlines in the. Um, in the Murdoch media, where it seems to be his major outlet of information, is about existing coal generators and extending the life of those. Now, we've, yeah. we've had a pretty clear signal from AGL that they don't think that's a good idea because it would cost um, over $100 a megawatt to keep it going for an extra five years as opposed to a much cheaper option with yeah, solar I, I, storage I, and things. We've had some absolute disasters with um, attempts with um, other aging so, coal generators, yeah, haven't I've been, we? So I've been I've been saying for a while that, that you know, I, well I've been offering ten to one odds that we won't get a new coal-fired power station in Australia, and there's a whole lot of economic uh, and political uh, reasons why why that's just you know why I'm really confident to offer that bet. And even even if Angus came out next week and said we're going to give five million dollars five billion dollars for a coal building fund, I will still offer my ten to one odds um, for it. I just think it's you know there's a whole lot of reasons as I said where it, it's just not going to happen. But what I think what I'm, what I'd be, what I'm pretty sure they're working on uh, is an offer to, ex to to help extend the life of coal power stations, so boiler upgrades or efficiency upgrades in existing stations. And, and um, I think before anyone gets too excited about that, they've got to have two projects in mind: um, Playford in South Australia and Mooja AB in WA. So Playford in 2005, um, Playford was the sort of the the smaller of the sibling of the Northern Power Station closed. In closed Port Augusta, in, that's right. In Port Augusta, closed in 2012. In, in 2005, it, the, they um, uh, embarked on a $150 million refit of Playford. It was called a midlife refit. It was supposed to give it another 20 years or so. Uh, it only lasted seven um, and only operated part-time in that. For 150 million dollars, and it was a tiny station. Mooja over in WA, uh, the government brought it out of mothballs and decided to uh, decided to extend its life. Um, in um, 2012, I believe it was. It took them uh, well, they, they took about a year or so to get it up and going to the point where, when the first day they started, it blew up and burnt somebody. Another year off while they fixed it again. It ran for a total of uh, three and a half years. It cost. Three hundred and eight million dollars to do the uh, to do the renovation on it. Only operated at seventeen percent capacity for for that period. Seventeen percent uh, capacity. So, yep, yeah, seventeen percent. And um, the, the the value of the power uh, that the cost of the retrofit worked out to be two hundred twenty seven dollars a megawatt hour. The complete. What was yeah, that so, number so again? Sorry, what was that number? Two two hundred and twenty-seven dollars a megawatt. Two hundred and twenty-seven dollars a megawatt. That's extraordinary. So that's, that's not including the, the the coal or the people to run it. So that's just what the retrofit costs. And and not I mean not I mean, sorry, this power station is only one eighth the size of the Dell. It's a tiny little one. And it was three hundred eight million. God. Now, when AGL looked at this last year, they, they worked out it was going to cost about nine hundred million dollars 
to put an extra decade of life into the Dell. And at the end of the day, what you, you, you've got power that is expensive uh, to generate because AGL's coal contracts are rolling off the sweetheart deals that they got when they bought it. Uh, and um, uh, then you've got a, you've got a, a carbon liability. Um, uh, who, who knows what the carbon price is going to be if there is going to be one uh, towards mm. 2030. Um, uh, and it's inflexible power. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it, it's not going to move as fast as the market needs, to move, needs it to move. So AGL can, did the analysis, and it's much cheaper to build a portfolio of generation, which, which they've already embarked upon. Yeah, yeah. Tell me, look, Simon, you spent a lot of time um, sort of challenging some of the people who have been the most vociferous opponents of uh, this energy transition and renewable energy, and you've actually invited them out for lunch or for a morning tea or, or however you go. <laughs> um, I suppose this is all some, sort of, some sort of conversion therapy, if you, if you like. How have you actually gone? What's been the response when you, when you, when you sat down and talked to them? So I have, I have spoken to a lot of people from, um, you know, from, from say, sort of across the aisle on energy. Um, we, look, we, one of the problems with social media is it's very easy to just end up in an echo chamber talking to your own, talking to your own base. Um, so I, I work pretty hard to go out and find, find people who are uh, opinion leaders uh, or, or you know, your frequent commentators who, uh, who uh, generally, you know, what, what I find is that we, we have a different idea of what the facts are. Yes. Uh, and I reach, do as much as I can to reach out to them. I found, you know, unsurprisingly, trying to um, you know, engage in, in um, uh, you know, pugilistic battles on, 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 on social media doesn't get anyone anywhere. But, but when you sit down uh, across, across the table from someone, you, you get an idea of what makes them tick. Um, yeah, I enjoy it. I learn a lot. And, and hopefully, by, you know, gradually by feeding them information, I can just soften will help help move them back into the into the land of reality and have you do, do, do you feel like you made some advance have you received any concessions yeah i have i probably uh you know <laughs> save it for a book later on because <laughs> a lot of things are uh, amid yeah um yeah are, are in are in play but i mean it's, it's amazing how many people who believe um i don't know the renewables yeah, um, I don't know. You, you we'll probably can talk about Judith Sloan's article a bit later on. But well, I was, you know, no, I was, I, I was actually going to say that um, I don't know whether she's been on your list, but um, Judith Sloan, um, no, who we often she hasn't yet. But, no. uh, but look, I mean, so, so some of the things you know, people, I get people who talk about you know, there are about three or five billion dollars a year in subsidies to renewables, and they've they've generally got this idea that uh, that um, renewable energy certificates trade at the spot market price. Now, and all of them pretty, are delivered at the spot market price, which of course is, yeah. is nonsense. There's, there's, I guess there's a, you know, it's almost as if there's, there's a concept that people take their LGCs to a special window in Canberra, hand the, hand the LGCs across the counter, and, and uh, the, the Governor Reserve Bank hands back gold bullion or something. Um, you know, <laughs> people think it's an actual taxpayer subsidy. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time explaining to people how it, the, the renewable energy target was brilliantly designed in that as the cost delta, the, you know, the difference in cost between renewables and spot price as that decreases, the subsidy decreases. So that, as, as you've reported many times, Charles, you've got projects like Stockyard Hill, largest uh, renewable, largest, well, I guess largest renewable energy project in, in Australia, is uh, is handing over its LGCs basically for free. That's, well, even better than that, po possibly at a negative price. Probably at a negative price. So, so uh, and, and uh, from... Um, 
uh, Tristan Edis, who's quite an expert on, on these, I've got a great statistic that 88% of LGCs uh, are bundled up in power purchase agreements. And the vast majority of power purchase agreements now are at or um, below spot market prices. So we're, we're at the point in this, this part of the renewable energy target where LGCs, that the certificates are not trading at the $72 spot, but many of them are being transferred at zero or economically negative numbers. Yeah, it's quite yeah. it's quite stunning. So taking people through that, taking people through the concept that yeah, there, there's there's a concept that if you build a wind farm in the middle of Australia, that that the government comes and builds the grid out to you and makes everyone pay for it. Well, that, that's certainly not the case at all. If you build, you know, one one of the biggest. I, I remember talking to the development team at Stockyard Hill years ago, and one of one of the biggest challenges of that project is they have to build 55 kilometres of power lines to it, and that's you know, not cheap with that kind of power. Well, that's exactly right. Well, that's one of the things that Judith Slow um, was quite wrong in saying in her diatribe Absolutely. against the Victorian Renewable Energy Target. She made that point that, um, well, other people have to pay for the network connection. Well, that's not true. And the, one of the main wind farms that will be built under this target, which is the Dundonald Wind Farm, um, has to build a 45-kilometre extension, which is going to cost them um, at least $50 million and probably a lot yep. more. Um, she mentioned some fanciful and quite ridiculous um, capacity factors for solar less than, I think she said less than 20% or 17% for solar, which is yeah. just nonsense. Both the well, solar farms had, um, or two of the... More, we had more, more e-solar farm and its first full financial year hit 30% capacity factor. But my... my um, well, well, the two... <laughs> Well, the Go two. I, I'm just going to sort of um, um, just jump in there because the two solar farms, um, which would be uh, two of the solar farms which are to be built in Victoria, um, they're actually using bifacial uh, solar panels and uh, tracking technology, and they're calculating a capacity factor of 31%, which in Victoria yeah. is quite astonishing. Yeah, it's a, I mean, I think you'd probably find you that wouldn't believe it, even if you showed if you even if you showed her the numbers. Uh, and wind farms, are, yeah, at most 30%. We we know there are there are many, probably most new wind farms in Australia are at, are at 40%. But the, this is a great example of these culture warriors uh, seem to stop reading reports a decade ago. They they haven't kept up with what's happening. Well, I think uh, it, so it, anything that's been published since then has been. Yes, that's right. Yes, well, I don't think they're particularly embarrassed because they keep on doing it. And um, the the final one of my favourite phrases, Giles, I'll just say one of my favourite. We've, we've we've got this great uh, units of measurement of megawatt per hour prices. Yes. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. It sort of there, there must be a law of discussion around renewables that as soon as anyone pulls out the megawatt per hour, uh, they lose the argument. Well, that's quite extraordinary too, because um, on on that point too, she actually sort of um, she's arguing that the Victorian Renewable Energy Target or this auction is a massive subsidy to these projects. But just to sort of be very clear about this, um, the those uh, wind projects and solar projects are going to get a defined price, which is around fifty six dollars for wind, and I think it ranges between fifty three and fifty six dollars for solar. So that's the that's the, the the rate that those wind and solar farms will get over the twenty year life of the contract. If the prices now compared to that. Compare those prices to where the Victorian um, wholesale price is now. And I guess for the last year, it's probably been averaging about $90 a megawatt hour and possibly a bit more. Um, if the price stays above that, then the extra money will actually be given to the government. Give back to the state. So, yeah, there's, there's a chance the state going to make some money out of this. As the ACT as, as has the, made money. As the ACT has does. Made money in, in some quarters, yeah. Absolutely. And then if the price falls below $56 a megawatt hour, well, that's probably signals the success of the renewables into the grid and will be good it, yeah. for everyone. 
Um, Charles, one, one, I wanted to, I've, I've explained to folks, you know, so people, as soon as I say to, uh, to, to you know, to, to, to some, of the, some of the people I meet who, who, who hate renewables, um, when I say that projects like Stockyard Hill uh, are now um, getting, you know, they're getting zero dollars for their LGCs, they say, well, let's rip out the renewable energy target then if that's the case. My, my answer to that, uh, and, and I genuinely believe this, is that if the renewable energy target wasn't in place, then uh, then those projects wouldn't be able to secure the financing that they secure. So they would be, you know, NAB is behind Stockyard Hill. NAB wouldn't be signing such a sharp deal with Stockyard Hill, and the project uh, would would have the, the equity holders wouldn't be as happy to. Um, at, at, the, at the rates that they cut. So that project would probably be in the market more like at $70 a megawatt hour. So there'd be an extra $20 premium and that premium would end up on consumers. Uh, so in, in a way, if we the, the, the target has allowed us to shift the, well, to, to, to take savings out of the risk premium for, away from bankers and through to consumers. And that's, I think, a really good, a really good thing for everyone. Mm, mm, absolutely. Like you're a banker. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and and of course, it's sort of you know given the, um, the the retailers reason to actually invest in wind and solar because otherwise they probably would have been quite happy just sort of sitting on whatever the assets they have and um, sitting on their own portfolio. Sitting on their old portfolio and given that they've got a statutory obligation to maximise the results of those portfolios, um, they may well not have changed otherwise. Absolutely. Look, um, Simon. It's um, anything else quickly to sort of wrap up before we uh, before we go. I'm not too sure whether you've got anything um, to look at um, for the next week. Well, I really enjoyed really enjoyed your Tesla uh, article on on Friday. Just giving us some of the numbers. Uh, it's it's, it's you know, always frustrating when the government signs these amazing de- deals, but doesn't tell us what the numbers are. Uh, it's it's amazing. It's taken us you know, ten months to get some of the details, and, and many of the estimates out in the market were right. So I guess that means there was <laughs> there were there were some good leaks. Yes, but um, yeah, it's quite quite amazing that the battery uh, looks like in its first six months it earned uh, about a quarter of its cost. Ninety million dollars to buy the battery, and uh, and twenty five million dollars in revenue so far the first half of the year. It's interesting. So it's obviously earning revenue from three different uh, parts of the market. One is the contract with the South Australian government to act as an emergency backup. Um, the second one is playing in the FCAS markets, where um, not only has it earned itself a lot of money, but it's also um, stopped the um, existing gas generators from rorting that market, particularly um, when there is a um, maintenance on the network and, and there's a captive market in South Australia. And we just saw some extraordinary bidding practices over the last couple of years, basically just sort of, you know, screwing the customers and what have you. And the other one, of course, is just the, um, the arbitrage and the playing the time difference with the output of the wind energy and just playing into the into the peak market and uh, it was interesting these details came out in the uh, prospectus or the offer documents for uh, Neoen the, uh, the the French company that owns it and um, um, it's one, one of the wonders of share market listings is that you need full, declo- full disclosure on a, a lot of these contracts so um, it was um, it was actually good to find uh, find this stuff out but I think that's I think it's going to be quite positive um, not just for the Tesla battery but for other battery storage developers because we're seeing a couple just about to connect in Victoria. The Ganawara Solar Farm, I think, is only about a week or two off from Correct. starting yep. its uh, connection procedures. Uh, we saw the Wattle Point Wind Farm. I think it's called Darumpal North doing another test last week and actually took the peninsula where it's located at the end of the grid off that grid just to sort of, you know, practice its islanding mode. 
And I think what the Tesla results actually show us is that um, there is a growing um, financial case for batteries, which will only increase once we get the five-minute settlement um, rules for, um, for, for financial deals on the market. Um, just to add to the fact that it's been incredibly quick, incredibly versatile and incredibly responsive um, and is now pl playing a key role as a major asset in the um, market operators um, sort of bag of tricks to deal with emergencies. Charles, two things I, I love about uh, the stories I love around the, the, the big battery uh, about around about was it was it March last year, I think, when we had the um, the tweets of, of tweets of the billionaires setting setting up the, the deal. It was March or April. Yes, indeed. Um, we in in uh, in March, AMO put out a report saying that um uh, you know batteries are an interesting opportunity for South Australia, but they really max out at one megawatt. Um, that's that's sort of as big as a battery can practically get. Oops. And that was in that was in the same month, and uh, and two months after that deal was struck. Uh, the Minerals Council, um, you know, it was actually Patrick Gibbons put out a, a lovely report about how awesome coal is, uh, and it, it said, um, well, batteries, you know, could one day be interesting, but they take three years to build a build a battery project. Three years. That is, that is. I'm gonna have to dig those up. Actually, I think that makes a nice little oh. article. I'll, 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 I'll help you with that. But it's, um, <laughs> uh, and of course, you've got our current prime minister Scott Morrison comparing it to the big banana and the um, and the big pineapple, and our resources minister Matt Canavan comparing it to the Kardashians. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's amazing how how fast we have moved. That was, um, yeah, and it was it was February of last year when when when. Um, the Prime Minister brought that, that varnished piece of coal into Parliament, which was provided, of course, by the Minerals Council. Uh, and we, we've had, we had all that silly rhetoric. Uh, and, and, and since then, we've now got seven or eight pumped hydro projects under development around Australia and batteries going in everywhere. You know, they, won't, they won't solve all the problems overnight, but if we make as much progress uh, yeah, each year as we've made in the last year, um, where you know, this, this energy transition is going very well. Indeed. Look, I think that's a positive note to end on, Simon. Thank you very much for um, joining Energy Insiders this week. Thanks a lot, Giles. It's been great to have a chat. And uh, thanks to our sponsors, Solaray Energy and What Watches. And um, we'll be back uh, next week um, with the um, with David Leach. I think we'll have gotten off his plane and uh, be back. Um, I think I wrote last week, maybe you think he's gone through a time warp. Um, when he looks at some of the policies and the politics. But um, anyway, look, thanks for listening. And um, we'll be back um, next week with the next episode. And also, if you happen to be at the All Energy Conference, we're going to be doing a combined recording with uh, David from Energy Insiders, Nigel Morris from Solar Insiders, um, and a couple of special guests at the conference at the lunchtime. So come along and have a listen and even um, pose a question. And um, we'll put that podcast or that recording up as a special podcast um, as soon as we can afterwards. So thanks for listening. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Solar Ray Energy, leading innovators of smart energy management technology. Experts in solar PV, storage and monitoring, they're the smart choice for consumers and business. Visit solarray.com.au and secure your energy future today. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Wattwatches, makers of ultra-smart devices to manage electricity use and costs, accurately monitor and control electrical circuits over the internet in real time. Visit whatwatches.com.au and take control of your energy use.